Hi folks and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Joined today by two people who set up a business in Toronto. They've written two books. Uh, they specialize in looking at management and, and how to learn the lessons from their life in startups to almost give somebody a playbook as a manager to lead. And what they found is it's uh, agnostic to any industry, so it is transferable right across to the large organizations, small organizations, startups. Uh, fascinating conversation, a direct challenging style, which is great. I love that. Um, and you'll hear a lot of the thinking and the work behind what they're doing. But again, they have this lovely challenge to clients around be careful what you wish for, because if you're doing this really, really well, it changes the culture, it changes the dynamics, and it's not seen as just a tick box exercise for management and leadership. Um, so you hear about that, you hear about the newsletter, you hear about their story and sitting on a beach six years ago giving up two successful roles to start up this business and uh, two delightful people and that you'll enjoy the conversation with. So enjoy. I'd love to understand a bit more about you and the family circumstances, and then we can get into the business if that works, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, two kids, okay. one in... French immersion, which is an adventure. She's six and constantly correcting our pronunciation, which we appreciate uh, unfailingly. She says, Mom, don't try. Don't try. It's don't not try. good when you try. Don't you try. You just speak English. Yeah, it all sounds like Spanish when you try. Stop okay. trying. Yeah. <laughs> and then I love the 12 year old who is fully into middle school. And Minecraft. Yeah. Middle school and Minecraft is where we are. Yeah. Minecraft. I remember like Minecraft. Is. Yeah. I do remember Minecraft. Fantastic. And Toronto is that home? Toronto is home. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I grew up here, or at least in the suburbs around Toronto, but didn't meet Melissa until uh, we were working for the same company back about 15 years ago. Yeah, and I was out in California and grew up in the States and met Jonathan and then decided I needed colder weather. Mm. Which is not a real decision. It's well, not a real decision. Let's go north. Why? Why, indeed. <laughs> Why were you in California? Uh, I was in San Francisco for more than a decade. Ah, I used to live in San Francisco a long while ago. San Anselmo. Oh, wow. Okay. So... Marin County. Yeah. So when I was 21. So yeah. We took the kids and they were like, you left this for dad? <laughs> I, know. I, know. I know. Speaking of biting critiques. <laughs> yes. There's feedback for you. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's those moments where my, because we were in Hershey, Pennsylvania when I was eight. And my dad was a doctor and working in the hospital there. And he decided with my mom to go home. And the three of us as kids all went, so why? Why are we doing this? Why are we going home? We loved it. Yeah. Did you go to Hershey Park as a kid? Well, it wasn't open when I was a kid. So I was 72. So I'm sure my age here. But um, yeah, I was seven when I was there. But I went to school there. <laughs> but it was the original Milton S. Hershey had his, uh, his homes there. So we used to see the long cars with the kids going to school. Uh, the chocolate factory was there, so every morning you went with a sniff of chocolate in your nose as you went to school. But the park hadn't been created, so it's when I go back and I go, well, what's changed? It's, it's huge awesome. now. Yeah. Um, I, I've got family there. My my sister and my brother and their kids are all near there. And so um, uh, we keep talking about taking the girls down because they haven't been, but I went as a kid. And that, that sort of experience mm. of getting like a Hershey's kiss that's as big as your face but like solid the whole way through – it's just a thing you need yeah. to experience at least Good once. and good for you. you. No, it is not good for yeah. you, but it is a thing that you need to try at least once. You're not good for your teeth either. Biting into her, she's kissed so the small version would be bad enough. Yeah. The big version, I think I'd be taking my fillings out. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Well, tell me a bit about your business. Tell me, for those who are listening who don't know you, tell me a bit about yourselves. Where do you want to begin? 
Mm. Oh, mm-hmm. so, the juicy bits is always the good place to start. So, yeah, when did you start? Yeah, what were the pain points? So, I'd say uh, sort of in, in sort of bringing the kids into the story. Uh, in 2016, our youngest child started sleeping through the night. She's a horrific sleeper. Like, really, you know very people, bad. Who have babies and they're like, yeah. yeah, the baby just slept and doesn't really do very much. And you put him down and it's not immediately. We did not have that. And so we had a kid who basically was up every 45 minutes around the clock. Oh, wow. just, just up, hanging out, wanted to to talk about the world. For like, a good eight just, to nine months. Just yeah. fully sleep deprived. Wow. And then and then started sleeping. And we sort of sat down and mm. said, okay, well, we haven't slept in yeah, I think for that first week, all we did was collapse. Yeah. I mean, we were just we were just horizontal, just just vacuuming up every moment we could get. But then we had this yeah. moment a, a couple of weeks after she started sleeping. We were sitting on the couch, and the girls were mm. in bed, and we had cognitive surplus. We we had the ability to form a coherent thought for the first time in months. Lovely. And we started writing. Yeah, and and more of sort of what it's sort of funny that like the first coherent thought you'd have in months is about management, but but we had both been working in tech for a very long time and we had been in executive roles and we sort of started sitting around and talking about the idea that like most of the writing about tech management and leadership was sort of very far removed from the reality day to day of our experiences managing in tech organizations. We're like, why is that? Why is it so so much that you read these things and you're like, this doesn't resemble at all sort of the experiences I'm having day to day? Yeah, there's there's sort of a couple of categories, right? There, there are a lot of you see, theoretical practitioners, researchers, mm-hmm. and stuff writing about the dynamics that exist in organizations. And I'm not I'm not knocking the research. I'm, I'm sure it's really solid, but the mm-hmm. way they describe things didn't didn't land like it felt when we were in them, right? It, it, intellectually, yeah. I'm, I'm sure the framework was was robust, but but it wasn't what the experience was when we were coming up in these management roles. And so it was hard to extract lessons from it or, or see myself reflected in it. Yeah. Um, so that was one category. And then there were also the VCs. Yeah, there were tons of venture capitalists writing about their experiences of investing in these companies and sitting on the boards of these companies. But as, as anybody sort of knows, sitting on a board is really different than trying to get a team of people to do things to impress said board. And it's not that both of those roles aren't challenging roles. It's just that, that when one person sort of from a board perspective is writing about the operational experience perspective, it, it misses, right? It fails to connect because it's it's not actually grounded in the experiences of the people who are operating day in, day out. And so we sort of sat and said, okay, somebody's got to write from the, the perspective of operators. Somebody's actually got to sit down and talk about like, what it feels like to try and get a group of people to do really hard things in in this context where you're growing and your team may be doubling or tripling in size in a single year. We weren't running a business together at that point. We were we were executives in, in two Toronto-based startups at the time. But mm. but in the evenings, we started writing the stuff that we wish somebody had handed us because because yeah. the truth is that when we got our first management roles, nobody handed us anything. They they handed us a business card. They said, congratulations. You know, you, you know, in my case, I, I was an engineer uh, at Mozilla at the time working on Firefox and the, the organization was growing. And they said, the engineering team's getting bigger. We'd like you to lead a small team. And it feels good. It feels good to be recognized. It feels good to be trusted. It feels good to be elevated and, and to have somebody feel like you could do that job well. So you say yes, mm-hmm. but, but you sort of expect that the next thing that's going to happen is they're going to say, and here's how you do that job. It's a very different job than the job you were doing. Here's any framework at all for how to think about it. And that that was just utterly lacking. And so, you know, we had pieced it together over years of, of trying to be as diligent as we could, finding mentors, reading books, learning from our own failures. But we started writing this stuff that 
we wished somebody had told us because we, we could have skipped several missteps. And at the point that we started writing, we thought we were writing only for startup people. We really sort of had this intention of like, we come from tech, we come from startup careers. That's sort of what we know. Surely we're writing for people who are in a startup context. And as we started putting these blog posts out into the world, we got we got sort of loud feedback back, not only from the startup community that said, yes, this is exactly what it feels like, but wildly divergent industries reached out to say, this is exactly what it's like in teachers unions in New York, in agriculture, in the American South. Like people reached out from all over the place and librarians reached out in mass and were like, a surprising number of librarians. A surprising actually. number of librarians said this is what's happening in the library <laughs> at the moment. One might wonder. We had people reaching out from academia, and if you sort of look at it on the face of it, you're like, academia and startup cultures could not be more different in most contexts. But those folks sort of reached out and said, "This is this is hitting it like it's really hitting a nerve." Yeah, there's this. You know, the, in startup land, they always talk about this product market fit thing that you know you can mm-hmm. you can fumble around and try to throw various things out there and see what people respond to, but that you'll know when you've hit it. Because of this vast sucking sound, this like that the that you've created a thing and, and opened a demand for a thing, and now there's an audience that that wants more of it, that is consuming it as fast as you can put it out, that's spreading it around, that's connecting it with more people, and that pulled us into early 2017. This sense that like every week we were writing something new, and and people were reading it and forwarding it and commenting on it and saying, "This is exactly what I'm going through. This clarifies the thing that I've been struggling with." Hmm. And because that child was sleeping through the night, it was also the first time in several years that we took the family on vacation. And and so we went down south because we live in Toronto. It's cold. Um, And so we went south and we were sitting on a beach Mm -hmm. and sort of looked at each other. The girls were both in in programming. You know, the the older kid was learning archery or whatever. The, The younger kid was basically just doing laps of the facility. but That's a dangerous thing <laughs> to give you teach a kid archery yeah. you know, <laughs> when they don't sleep as we well. Were. Colin, right. the best part is they, they let the eight-year-old at that time do archery, but they wouldn't let her do tennis because they Not said safe. tennis was too dangerous. Mm-hmm. We said, no. I have no idea how <laughs> you're calibrating danger, but yeah. okay. Anyway, but the kids had programming, which is, which is sort of a magical thing, especially if you haven't been sleeping so much. Yeah, so we sat there on that beach with, with silence and sort of had this moment where we looked at each other and, and I said, you know, I, th- I think I have to quit my job. Hmm. I mean, I'm not sure what the next thing is going to be, but I think it's going to be something to do with this writing stuff we've been doing because I'm pretty energized about that. Lovely. And then Melissa <laughs> said basically the same thing. Yeah, the, 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 the work that we were doing, it was so neat to see it really take off. It was neat to see people respond to it. And we just said like primarily like the thing that tech people really get excited about is this idea of iteration, right? And that, that mm-hmm. sort of we ship things, we put it out into the world, we see how people respond. We have entire frameworks built around like how you sort of get a signal from from the universe about whether you're on the right track. And we had sort of gotten this, to Jonathan's point, like a very loud signal from the universe that we were on the right track and felt like this is a place where it's it's sort of ripe for change, right? That we had sort of come up through this path in our own careers. We were now a decade out from the first time we were managing people. And we looked around and we said, like, we're, do, we're still doing the same thing. When you put people into positions of management, by and large, the vast majority of folks who are stepping into a management or leadership role in a, in a tech organization today are doing so with no training, with no explanation of the difference in terms of the expectations of the roles or responsibilities that they've stepped into. And we keep wondering why it goes badly. I mean, just, somebody's got to do something about this. And surely the VCs would have seen that as well. I mean, joking aside, there's there's something about advisory boards because we, we talk about noses in, fingers out mm-hmm. for advisory boards or noses in, fingers in. 
and a lot of you know VCs and other places and noses in fingers in. So they're in so much that they almost can't see what the problem is sometimes. So that's a, an issue. And in many cases, their operator experience is, is like either lacking or dated. And so yeah. they, they would give advice. Even when we were in our startups, they would give us advice in mm-hmm. board meetings. And, and you just sort of stare at it and be like, I, I will be respectful to you right now. Yeah. But it would be a disaster if I implemented what you just described. Also, managing iBankers is a different context. And so for many folks who had come from either consulting backgrounds or iBanking backgrounds, the things that they would suggest for startup, like people who are expressly attracted to a startup role, it it would have been an incredible dissatisfier to manage them that way. Agreed. I love the fact you've made a connection between parenting and management and leadership, because I think there is something in there. You know, I saw Dear Evan Hansen, the musical recently, it was Anybody Got a Map? And there is that piece where nobody has a map, and actually, we sometimes we need to give people a map to to, to work it out. So I think that's one I love. But I, I love the other piece that we're starting to look at the advisors and who you get as advisors. Um, interestingly, and, and for me, there's a big difference between thought leadership and practice leadership. And I'm a big fan of practice leadership because thoughts come out of that, but it's not somebody in an ivory tower or in a, a university or somewhere else saying this is what you should do. It's people who have actually done it and proved it. Yeah. When we when we talk to the companies that we work with and the leaders that we work with, one of the questions we get early on often is, "What's your maintenance regime to make sure that they actually implement these skills?" Right? You're gonna you're gonna teach them some things. How are we gonna make sure they actually do it? And it's funny, it's not a problem mm-hmm. <laughs> because. By and large, there's there are these sort of cartoonish portrayals of bosses, right, of, of pointy-haired, micromanaging bosses. And then certainly those people exist in the world. There are people in the world who yell. There are people in the world who use their power in an organization to harm other people. And that's a real problem. Mm. And 99.9% of the leaders that we've worked with are trying very hard. They're ignorant. Yeah. They're not malicious. Mm. They're ignorant. And, and with love in my heart, like I was too. Um, but they're just yeah. they're fundamentally lacking the tools they need. And when you give them those tools, they deploy them and and it is it is very strong reinforcing feedback about like whether they're useful or not because suddenly they feel like they've got some competency at this stuff. Yeah, one of the things that we say is like the most flattering thing that people say coming out of programs with us is that it's very pragmatic. They say, well, I, I did an MBA and it was really good and I got sort of, I got like a good grounding in business understanding, but this is very practical. It actually like tells me I sort of was with you folks on Tuesday and on Wednesday I went and tried the skill. I did the thing and yeah. now I just do that. Yeah. I, I love that because it's, uh, for me, it comes from the practice leadership, goes into it. But, it, you know, I remember reading Eric Reese's book, mm-hmm. Lean Startup, mm-hmm. and then our exponential organizations, which I still hold as a bit of a, a guide to. But I also then went and worked with Experience Points, who are a Canadian, obviously Toronto-based mm-hmm. firm, and did design thinking, and suddenly discovered that everything about startup was what organizations needed. So you, you hit on a, a rich vein when you pick that up. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. Startup gets held up a lot of the time as this mm-hmm. model, right? When we when we talk with larger organizations, they either have in-house innovation departments or or they're acquiring startups but trying to preserve some element of the culture because there's a thing there that's very attractive for business leaders in other fields in terms of innovation, in terms of rapid cycling, mm-hmm. in terms of like measuring as you go and and learning very quickly. And in terms of employment brand, if we're really honest, yeah. right? Like particularly yeah, right yeah, now yeah. in terms of sort of a competitive market for talent, people want to go somewhere where they where they have sort of a backdrop of that innovation. But I will say the lived experience of a lot of employees in startup, I mean, the the pay is often better. It's it's much yeah. more competitive than many industries right now. But the lived experience is not that those people are having a better time 
in terms of their management relationship, that they have more clarity about expectations or about career pathing, right? There's, there's a great deal of job hopping in startup, not because it's required, but because it's the only path they have. That if I want a promotion, my own manager doesn't really know how to navigate that. But if I can interview somewhere else and get a, a senior title attached to me, if I can get a director title attached to me, then that's how I take custody for my own career path. And, and I, I can't fault an individual for doing that, but I can look at those organizations and say, what are you doing? Like, how, what, what is your plan for, for building any kind of continuity here so that you don't have someone come in and do a, a 12 month tour of duty and get to the point where they're really thriving and then leave because you have no answer about how to, to shepherd that growth. Right. And it's a place actually where other industries that are a little more established you know, they, their workplaces could be just as toxic, but at least they have answers for some of these things around what does progress look like for me? What can I expect if I, if I invest in this way, if I develop these skills, mm. you know, what, what does my future look like here? It's a tough job to be running those businesses, isn't it? I mean, as, a, as an owner of a business running one myself, having the, the foresight <laughs> plus the ability to be in the moment and deal with it plus the connection there is a plus trying to do things at pace and at speed because of capital and other things that's burning in the background. It is a tough gig. So uh, presumably you went back in with this model first off and went straight back into startups or did you go wider? What was the, the tactic? Again, in terms of sort of like our initial assumption is that like we are, we are startup people, we are tech people. That is the background that we come from. And so when we started, we assumed that the vast majority of folks we'd be working with were coming from startup or coming from tech. Mm. And in part that the reason why they would want to work with Raw Signal Group is because we had sort of direct and domain expertise in the work that they were doing day in, day out. That is one thing to sort of stand up in front of a room full of bosses and say like, your job is hard and generically like you should do a good job of managing your people and that would make your job easier. But it's another thing to say, like, I specifically understand from a deep empathetic place, the pressures that you're under. And I have done a role that is either very similar to or identical to the role you're trying to do right now. And here are some things that are probably getting in the way. It's funny. It was, it was both a strength of ours and a limiting belief, which is maybe how they always work. That we came in with this assumption that one, Melissa and I are the ones in front of the room. You know, we don't mm -hmm. we don't design the curriculum and then, you know, train a bunch of business school graduates to go deliver it. It's a common model. There's nothing wrong with it. But the, the thing that was going to distinguish us yeah. was that the people talking to these startup leaders were going to be themselves startup leaders that Melissa said it. We, mm -hmm. have, we have done most of the jobs of the people in the rooms that we're working with. That's a strength. It makes us different from a lot of other places. But it also limited us because it made us believe that the only places we had legitimacy were the places where we could talk to departments we'd already run to leaders and organizations that felt like organizations we'd been a part of. So in the, the first two years of running Raw Signal Group, I'd say the vast majority of folks that we were working with were tech leaders. And then as the organization sort of got more well-known for the work that we do day in, day out, more folks got excited. Like more of the, the sort of innovation teams at bigger organizations said, well, we hired a bunch of startup leaders to run the innovation process within this like giant megacorp. And what we found is that they're phenomenal at the technology. They're phenomenal at thinking like massive ideas, but they have the same shortcomings as startup leaders often do, which is that they got thrown into the deep end and they got no training and we now need to get them trained. But we've got this massive corporate L&D initiative that they bounce off of, right? They sit in there and they say, it's either boring, it's outdated, it's not fun, it's not clever, it's not research-backed, it's not data-driven, and they're bouncing off of it and we need them to succeed because fundamentally the future of this mega corporation is on the success of these innovation teams, but the innovation teams need to be met well managed. And they're, they're now sort of bumping up against very similar problems to the ones that we were solving day in, day out. We also have started to get 
much more work from uh, the not-for-profit and charity sector where people yeah. reach out and say, I'm, I'm sure our challenges are much more difficult than startup, right? Startups got money and we don't. And so, you know, many of the tools that I'm sure you would deploy in a startup context aren't going to work for us. And, and one of the first things we say to them is, you have something every startup wishes they had. You have a mission that's real. Mm-hmm. You're, you can actually point to your impact in the world, or at least I, I hope you can. But like yes. for many of these not-for-profit organizations, they're, they're not mission as a marketing tool in order to recruit staff, mm. their mission as a defining element of why the organization exists. And many startups would self-describe that way as well. But but it's intrinsic to being a charity or a nonprofit that you have some social good built into the work you do. And mm. there's a set of people for whom that's that's so compelling. That's such an attractor and such a retention tool. You know, you, you have to be mindful of different things. You have You have so much ability to burn people out when taking vacation feels like betrayal of mission, when not working weekends feels like letting down the population that you're here to serve, right? So you, as mm-hmm. managers, you've got to be really crisp about your boundaries. But, but fundamentally, like, you have assets there that every startup is trying to replicate their own version of, and you've, you've got to lean on those strengths. I love it. I'd also say one of the things that was really educational for the two of us was that in 2019, we started opening our programs up. Prior to 2019, the only way to work with us was one where your organization would have to decide that this was a program that they were rolling out and they would reach out. And we were we were sort of entirely having relationships with organizations, not with individual bosses. And in 2019, we ran our first event where we said, hey, if you're an individual boss and you want to come hang out with us for a couple of days and, and go deep on management and leadership topics, let's do it. We'd love to see you there. And the piece that was really surprising for us was that once you removed it from my organization has to make this decision as an organization to I as an individual leader am finding deep resonance with the things you're talking about and I'd like to come. For us, I I would say that was surprising because it really shifted the types of folks who were showing up to our events. It's funny because we're doing a project called the 500, as we were talking about earlier, and that's what's happening to us now is that because it's got an impact on society, because it's got a differentiator in that, people are going, yeah, I want to sign up and I'll pay my own money. To, to sign up. So it is fascinating. Whereas open programs, they're always a nightmare to run. But actually, I think you get such a richness from different organizations coming in and talking about different problems. So yeah, There's also so much normalizing that happens, right? I think one of the things that, mm. that is the benefit of the work that we all do is that you get to understand how many folks feel like they're the only ones. How many folks who are managing and leading either feel like they're, they, they have imposter syndrome about sort of how they show up in that role, or they feel like they've got tools, but the tools that they have work half the time and they can't even predict which half, right? Like they, they've got some mm-hmm. sort of aspect where they're like, I would like to get better at this. I know it's not going swimmingly. I would like some support. And the minute you put all of those people in a room together, is this just like shoulders down moment where everybody's yeah. like, oh, it's not just me. It's not. I'm not the only person who either has imposter syndrome or, uh, you know, doesn't know how to coach and never, and has always struggled with that. Just simple things for me. And I love your analogy of the not-for-profits because I was just chatting to a gentleman who runs something called The Mighty, which is an amazing organization supporting uh, networks of people who are suffering from illnesses, whether it's parents or family members in there. But he was talking about he doesn't have a recruitment problem. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's got so many people who want to be passionate about what they're doing. So they're not for profits. You're exactly right. It is about getting people who believe what you believe, to quote Simon Sinek, and then come in and do something about it. And it's, you know, that is the universal, right? When we talk to Mm. hiring managers, you know, we're based in Toronto and and the startup market here is very hot right now. And so there's a lot of competition for talent at all levels of seniority. And sometimes we'll hear from leaders who say, well, it's impossible to hire. 
right? I, I don't have mm. the money that some of the larger organizations here do. And so, you know, I can't, I can't compete against them for, for somebody who's, who's really looking for cash. And we say, okay, mm. that, then you can't, right? You don't all have to have the same compensation strategy and it certainly doesn't have to be a race to the top. But, but, you know, one of the things we push on is this talent market has whatever it has, a couple hundred thousand people mm. um, that are looking for jobs in tech that, that may or may not be a good fit for you. You don't have to hire a couple hundred thousand people. You have seven open recs, right? You need to find seven people mm. that you can hire. And so the crisper you can be about that story and zero in on those people, the less you have to worry about some unrelated company throwing more money at them. Like you've got to be equitable. You've got to, you've got to meet the market at least partly where it is. But you have to tell a much richer and more intact story. I'd say like one of the most yeah. obnoxious things we tell hiring managers is there's no talent shortage. You're just bad at it. And if you got better yeah. at it, you would find it yeah. easier. But so many people want a pattern match. They want to say like the person who's going to be right for this role is the person who's done this role for the last five years. And we're like the person who's done that role for the last five years is ready for their next challenge. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so you have to think, and, and it's often, you know, I need to, I need to hire away from a competitor who's doing exactly what we're doing and exactly the industry we're doing. We're like, again, many of those people are bored of that challenge and they're ready for the next challenge. And so how are you going to attract people into your organization if your only answer for them in terms of growth is just take the same job that you were doing before and do it again, but with a different logo, you know, on your backpack? There's this inversion that we, we push on actually in several dimensions at once around like moving from sort of a passive framing to an active one, right? Like mm-hmm. we, we had a similar conversation with goals once. We, we talk about goal systems and, and we're not particularly sort of dogmatic about, you know, you, you must do it like Google does it or you must do it like Netflix. We use whatever system makes sense for your organization. But in terms of things that we know, we know mm-hmm. that if, if you take 16 goals, if you take 47 goals in a quarter, you're going to miss many of them. It's just not, this is not how teams operate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd be talking to a group and somebody would put their hand up and they would say, well, I, I have, you know, three goals for this quarter, but I have six that carried over from last quarter. And I had four that my, my manager gave to me that I have to take. And I, I can't do anything about that. Like that's 13 goals. So, so now what would you do? Mm-hmm. And we just sort of sit with it and we're like, I guess you'll just have a worse life. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> if you treat it as just an immovable object that, you know, you, yeah. you're doomed to have 13 goals and not be able to achieve them. Well, then, like, I guess that's not going to be a very fulfilling job for you. But I think it's so much more helpful to say, where do I have any ability to dimensionalize it? Where do I have any ability to engage in a conversation about that. the trade-offs that we're making? Whether it's talent, whether it's goal setting, whether it's the number of direct reports you have, whatever it is. Mm. Either you're playing an active role because you're cashing a management paycheck, either you are managing mm. or you're just being buffeted by all these forces. And that's that just feels like such a, a less exciting life to live. An Australian friend gave me the expression, which is getting people to own their ro- roles, not rent them. Mm. And it is fundamentally that, you know, if you own your own house, you might look at totally knocking it down, refurbishing it, whatever it is, you get a choice. When you're renting, you're looking for other people to do it. And I think you've hit something for me, which is important, which is getting leaders to sail their ship out of the harbor and stretch themselves too. Yeah, but you have to have an organization that's willing to consume that. One of the things that that we say to organizations all the time before we start work, they say, okay, well, you know, our leaders are really excited about working with you and say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 we're really excited too. But before we get started, we should talk about a thing and be really clear. We're going to hand you back a lit up management core. And if that sounds exciting to you, great. If you want those folks sort of stepping into more of the responsibility and the accountability that comes with doing that work and doing it well, if you want them collaborating and sort of acting as a cohesive unit to make change within the organization, 
Absolutely. We're excited to do that work. If that's terrifying, if that's going mm-hmm. to get those people fired, we shouldn't do this work because you don't want to lit up active management core that acts as a team. What you want are individual leaders who say yes all the time, whether it's good for the business or not. And if that's what you want, we're not the people for you. I love that challenge, though, because for me, so many times we go in and, and that's a part of our industry that fails is we're brought in by L&D people to solve the challenge. But when you get to the strategic need for the challenge, it's normally, well, can you just take care of my people while I focus on other more important things? And, and what you're talking about is a startup mentality where everybody's involved, engaged, and they've got to be able to amplify their voices. I love that. For us, like we feel like that's a win, right? We feel like that's yeah. that's the whole point. The whole point is that you should have managers that are lit up about doing that work well and view it as sort of valid and, and work that they're responsible for as much as their individual contribution work, if not more. But again, like not every organization can consume that. And that that's okay. And I know we, we are all going to agree in this conversation about it, but it's one of the hardest things we, we do. Oh, we, we meet yeah. these leaders who are basically charged with care and feeding, right? Like, you yeah. know, approve vacations, have one-on-ones with them, ask them how they're doing. But like, fundamentally, we don't expect you to own strategic elements. We don't expect you to really be accountable for the state of the overall business. We just want these people happy, basically. Yeah. You know, we when we talk to leaders, we say, your job is not to make people happy. A happy team is a wonderful thing, but but if you orient yourself towards the joy of your team as a primary metric, you can get to a place where you're very ineffective and it's not very joyous for a team to be laid off because they're not doing anything. So like what we push on is your job is to make your team more effective and good news, psychological safety predicts that effectiveness, right? Having a strong rapport with my manager predicts that effectiveness. We don't have to be friends. We don't have to go out to the pub, but like it does have to be true that when I come to work, I can communicate with that person and feel like that person respects my basic dignity, understands my work, values and invest in my growth, right? And that those things will tend to make me happier. But mm-hmm. fundamentally, we're focused on effectiveness. And, and the bosses sort of nod along and say, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I can accept that framing. And then we say, okay, great. Effective at what? What are we trying to accomplish? What is your team mm-hmm. here for, right? I mean, again, in every talent market's different, but we'll talk to managers here who are running a medium-sized team and we'll say, by the time we factored in your your payroll and your hotel space and your hybrid workforce and your laptop and stuff, there's one to two million dollars a year in recurring cost for your little team. Mm. What is the business buying for two million dollars? And and like, can we articulate it? And is it worth the two million dollars we're spending on it? And it and a lot of managers that we meet, even people who have been at it for a decade, when confronted with that, you can see them sort of tense up because they don't know the answer. No. They don't know fundamentally they're here because like we're a software company, so we have a bunch of engineers, right? But they yeah. don't know what it is that their team is is responsible for and how to know whether they're doing it brilliantly or not. And from that place, mm-hmm. it's it's so difficult to show up for your people well and, and put opportunities in front of them that are meaty and challenging. But Jonathan talked about it, right? Like much of the work that we do is getting it from it's it's a fundamental law of the universe that I don't really understand what my team is working on to I am responsible for figuring out what my team is meant to be working on. And if I don't have the answer, I have to do the like hard work of going and figuring that out. Even if that means saying to my own boss, hey, I don't have clarity here and I need it because you ha- rolled over six of my OKRs for like this quarter. And I actually need to know which of these things are the most important thing. Otherwise, I can't lead this team of people to, and tell them which thing to do and which thing to drop. It's interesting. It goes back to the team of teams piece from, um, uh, I've got the author now. Mine's gone blank. But he talked about the need to go back out from your own team and infiltrate other teams, including your boss. Yeah. 
to to work out what's going on and the courage to do that. We do most of our work encouraging people and training people how to have conversations with their boss, which fascinates me. Probably I've fired once and made redundant once from businesses, probably because I had those conversations in the past. Mm -hmm. But it is fascinating to to teach the culture to be like that, yeah, is a a different thing. Mm -hmm. And a very vulnerable act. Right. That we hear it a lot. We'll be working with managers and they'll say, well, this all makes sense and I really appreciate it. But my own boss isn't in this program. So how am I supposed to go back and and deal with them? And, you know, Melissa said it, that that the core of what is my team here for and how do I know if I'm doing a good job? Many people with with mild encouragement can go to their boss and say, hey, I'd like to understand more about that. Mm. Right. That That's okay. That that sounds like a businessy thing to do. It sounds like a, a go-getter or climber thing to say, like, I just want to understand how I'm being measured. Mm. And their boss will give them an answer. And half the time, maybe more than half the time, that answer is insufficient. It's it's really vague. Mm. It hasn't been tested. It's it's off the cuff. Um, they use the team name in the definition of the team's yeah, work, right? Your like, job is engineering. Yeah. Your customer support team. Support they the customers. Support the customers. But now comes the hard part because as the the report, Mm -hmm. who's got to go back to their own team and articulate it, you still don't have the answers you need. And now it's very vulnerable. It's very vulnerable to say to your boss a second time, I still don't get it. I'm not trying to be dense. I'm not trying to be defiant or, or anything. I'm just, I don't understand it. You haven't given it to me concretely enough for me to operationalize it. Mm -hmm. And that not only is it vulnerable because it makes it look like you're incompetent, it's also vulnerable because you're suggesting that your own boss is incompetent, right? But that some yes. somebody somewhere has done a bad job yeah. of transmitting this message or receiving it. And many leaders will do the first question, but shy away from the second one. But fundamentally, like strategy and alignment roll downhill in organizations. And so if I don't have a clear answer, I cannot. Like you, you are incapable. If you do not have a clear story about the work that your team is doing and how it plugs into the larger work happening within the organization, fundamentally, if someone on your team asks that question, you are not able to give them a satisfying answer either. Like your, your best hope is to guess and fumble through it like your own boss did with the team's name somewhere in the definition of it. And so the, this encouragement is also an act of alignment, right? Is that if we, are, if we as an organization create a situation where leaders within that organization can do the vulnerable act of asking upward getting clarity, understanding the strategy, situating the work that their team is doing in the overarching story of the organization, then they can deliver that for their people. If not, Mm. that break, you can see it on org charts, right? You can see it sort of in pulse surveys where you ask sort of the the most junior people in the organization what they're meant to be doing and sort of how they'll know if they're succeeding or failing at it. And they have no idea. And you're like, well, where... where did the game of telephone break? And you're like, often it breaks in that middle layer because the executives sit around and talk about it sort of ad nauseum, right? Like talk about it sort of, they go on offsites, they have sort of regular board What's our moat? How are we going to defend it? They they spend a lot of time on it. And the question I would ask any organization is like, great, you've got someone who just joined three months ago. Can they answer that question? And can they answer it in their own words versus just reading it off some, some slide deck that they saw, right? I mean, in other contexts, this would be just a bad comedy sketch. Right, if you got into a cab and the driver asked where you wanted to go, and you said mm, somewhere nice, yeah, like you just you, you can't drive if you don't have a destination, right? But but we do this to leaders and and to individual contributors all the time. We're like somewhere mm. better than where we are, you know, you'll you'll figure it out. Like, but there are so many options. What would you like me to choose from, right? And it, we find it really normal here, and and part of how we find it normal is that we know it's wrong. Mm. We know it's overambiguous. We know we haven't been helpful to the person on our team, but we abuse 
the power differential there yep. to make them feel stupid for asking, right? Because it, it mm-hmm. lets us off the hook for our own inadequacy. And and so much of the work that we do with leaders comes back to that, that like mm-hmm. we have to acknowledge the power differentials that exist. And particularly new leaders are extremely reluctant to do it. Mm-hmm. They, they really just want to be one of the people on the team, right? We were all buds three weeks ago. I got promoted, mm-hmm. but surely that's just a new business card. It just means I have to sit in some crappy meetings that you don't have to sit in. But like, you know, we're, we're all still friends here. I, I want to push away the power, push away the power, because it feels very uncomfortable to acknowledge mm. that I now control your promotions, some to some degree, your work assignments, your your opportunities for growth in this organization, that I can, I could terminate your employment. That power to land on you with no equipment in terms of how to reason about it, many leaders will just pretend it away, but it's real. Mm. And, and a core yeah. piece of getting better at this is, you know, you, you said it earlier, is, is to own your role instead of renting it to sit in the seat and be like, if that's what it is, then mm-hmm. I better figure out how to equip myself to, to shepherd that power responsibly because I've got a set of people who need that from me in order for them to not have a toxic workplace. I think that's a, you know, we used to talk about, we still talk about brief back, check back when you're giving somebody a role and task. And I love the fact that you said it's not the words that you've heard, but your interpretation back. So you give somebody a task, you ask them to to, to play it back to you. That's the point where you realize how unclear you are as a leader the majority of the time because they have no clue. But it's that two-way conversation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. My, my early career was in public relations, right? Like the first time I managed people is in sort of a public relations role. And one of the things we used to say in PR is that you'll know that your message has connected when someone quotes it back to you without attribution. Yeah, yeah. When it just seems like a smart idea yep. out there in the world. <laughs> So I'm going to take you back to the beach. So you were sleep deprived. Yeah, you were writing, you were working. And I just have this imagination now having talked to you about you talking to your kids and talking to them in this way. Yeah. And saying, okay, so repeat back. What's your role? You know, all these questions. But it it is a degree of parenting that that came to that. But there was a big risk for you in that beach to say, right, we're going to give our roles up. We're going to um, to operate. So a a fascinating question for me always in this is how you measure your success of that decision. Yeah. Now, how are you measuring it? It evolves so much. I mean, there were several risks in that moment, right? We both worked for startups in Toronto, but our CEOs were friends. When we went in to to say, you know, we're resigning to go found this thing together. And and the the loveliness of working in startup is that the, the nicest thing you can say to somebody is we're going off and we need to go found a thing. And most founders understand that and say, you know, good, good luck to you. And I hope I wish you all the best. Right. Yeah. But our our founders were friends with each other. And so we had to time those conversations <laughs> so that one of them wouldn't write to the other one and say, hey, did you hear what Melissa and Jonathan are off, you know, about to go do? (laughs) Yeah, had to stick the landing on that one. Um, But but so many risks, right? So we we said that and we we gave our startups, you know, relatively long goodbyes. We we weren't trying to surprise anyone. We just we just knew this was the next thing. We we felt a draw to it. But it was also a draw to bring our household income to zero dollars. Yeah. Um, and and not from a position of being able to sustain that indefinitely and without really a, a product in mind. I mean, you, you, selling blog posts is not is not likely to be it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd written those those blog posts and we turned them into our first book. And that was an adventure all on its own. But but we we never deluded ourselves to imagine that that was going to sustain our household to say nothing of an ongoing firm. No. And I think that, you know, one of the the first pieces was that many of our friends in venture capital said, well, you know, the first rule in venture, right? And we're like, okay, no, tell us what's the first rule in venture capital. And they said, never invest in a husband and wife team. Cool. 
awesome. Great rule. So, yeah, that was that. super helpful. Okay, so should we get um, divorced now or later? <laughs> but I think the, the thing that we knew fundamentally was that we weren't building an app. We weren't building an app. Our, our sort of intention was really around sort of like rolling up our sleeves and getting in and doing work mm. day in, day out with bosses. That was the thing that we really enjoyed. And so fundamentally, we knew that, that sort of our starting point was not software, that we really wanted to sort of better understand the problems and better understand, like we we came up through startup and said, okay, most people don't get training, but understanding the why mm. of why don't people get trained, right? Like it, it's not that tech as an industry doesn't, you know, you're sitting in a $5,000 chair, you're working on a $6,000 laptop. It's not that we don't have money to spend on managers coming in the door. Why aren't we giving anybody any training? And so understanding that why was really fundamental in sort of all of the work that we were doing was why when we invest in other training, why when you'll send people to worldwide developer conference out in Cupertino at the drop of a hat, won't you get your like bosses any training? Yeah, and so now we're in our sixth year, remarkably, and the way we keep score is is complex. Mm. You know, one part of it is we're in our sixth year, and and we've we're still here, <laughs> right? At least Marriage. this much of a pandemic, <laughs> yeah. And so that persistence counts, right? Yeah. It has a, a quality all of its own. We've managed to sustain mm. our own household, but we've we've got a, a couple people that we work with now, and and to be able to have a company. Where, where we can show up and, and do work that we're really proud of and also run a company in line with our own values, that's, that's very important to us. Yeah. We had a situation a couple months ago where you, know, you sort of see people's updates on LinkedIn, right? And part of the joy of the work that we do is that we work with sort of leaders day in, day out, and then you get to see them get promoted, right? Yeah, you get to the see best. them take yeah. on new roles within the organization and sort of do like sort of expansion of the work that they're doing. And we had a leader that that had come to us because they were working for someone who had worked with us years ago. Hmm. And that was really neat. And they announced that they were taking on a new role and the company where they were going to work was a place where their boss was going to be someone who had done work with us years ago. Wow. And I looked at Jonathan and I said, this is all I ever wanted. All I ever wanted was someone to be working for a boss that believes in them and knows how to skill them up. And then when they leave to go to the next organization, that's that's their default. Their de facto understanding of the work world is that their boss should be trained and their boss should be competent and and sort of in their corner and know how to develop them. And that when they leave to go to the next organization, that should also still be true. Yeah. Our, our core theory is like work is not great for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And that's a complex and manifold problem, and no one organization should claim to solve all of it. But we believe in our hearts and in our own experience and in what we've seen over the last five years that a core piece of it is the competency of the manager, right? Yeah. There's, there's all sorts of research that comes out every every month. There's another article about, you know, your relationship with your manager is a, is a better long-term predictor of your health than your relationship with your doctor, right? Or mm-hmm. We spend more time at work than we spend with our family. So there's there's all these sort of reinforcing things that point to the the caliber of management that you receive in an organization being a very strong predictor of whether work is good for you or not. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a lever we can act on. Mm-hmm. And so every time we get to work with bosses and, and get them a little more mindful, a little more aware, and, and certainly bringing in more skills. But even if somebody leaves our program and they're like, well, I still don't have skills in this area. I'd like to do some more work we've at least turned them into known unknowns. We've been able to disassemble it enough and, and look at the various pieces that a person can say, okay, I, I have skill on this thing, but I know I'm falling down on this thing, so I can go get more selective and intentional development there. Yeah, That's something I lacked for the first several years as a leader, and, and I'm sure it showed, right? I, 
I wasn't a boss who who yelled at my people. Mm. Um, I was a boss actually who over-indexed on their happiness. But yeah. it still meant that I was failing them in various ways. And had I had the equipment to self-assess, I could have gotten better at that so much faster. So that just to see thousands of leaders going through the world with that equipment, that is that is so gratifying for us. And so those are sort of the the external factors. And then I would say from the intrinsic perspective, mm. this is the best work that we've ever done in our careers. It, it is such a phenomenal joy to work with bosses. And, and, you know, many people come into the program with us. And one of the common pieces of like one of the common pieces of feedback we get on the way in the door is I don't know what I don't know. Mm-hmm. I know I'm missing skills, but I don't know what I don't know. And it is such a joy to watch folks light up and be like, oh, I'm playing back a conversation that happened last week. And I now understand why it didn't go well. Yeah. And I know what to do instead. And you're like, great, you will know that for the rest of your career, right? You're not going to walk into, you're not going to sort of step off that cliff that's just not going to happen for you. And it's not going to happen for anybody who's working under you basically ever again because you unlocked it. Yeah, we we don't write our blog posts on Medium anymore. That's where we did back in 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, these days we write a, a biweekly newsletter and we just sent out our 100th edition, which, wow. you know, given that it's biweekly, means we've been at it for four years. Mm-hmm. And when we talk to people about that newsletter, they're like, I love the newsletter. The content's really great. Do you, how do you think about the marketing impact of it? Hmm. And And we're sort of obnoxious. I'm getting a theme here. Obnoxious is the second time mentioned in here. So this is very un-Canadian in certain ways. Can I just say? (laughs) Um, I'll acknowledge up front that this is a bit of a self-important way to describe it, but it's it's factual. Like when people ask about this, what we say is it's not marketing, it's art. Mm. It's where we put our creative expression about how we relate to the work that we're doing, right? That every two weeks we put something out here, which is just sort of a we try to be very practical. We try to ground it in something real, but it's it's trying to channel the reactions we have to the conversations we're having with leaders, to the the discourse we're seeing in public about management. Yeah, and it's it's just a way for us to keep that conversation moving forward. It's also where we honor the vulnerability that people bring into conversations with us, right? Like it is a way to sort of honor those conversations and say we're I don't know. It just gives us an opportunity to do some of that synthesis of what are you hearing and what is it like to work in in a sort of fast moving organization. Again, we started. With, as a reaction to a conversation that we didn't see ourselves in. Mm. That we've been working in tech for 20 years. And when people talk about managing and leading in tech, nothing about it seems familiar. And for us, I think we got really excited about, about sort of writing from that perspective. And then I think in terms of sort of why we keep it up every two weeks is that we want more folks to see, like, this is what it's like. It, it isn't always that the boss comes down from their sort of corner office and says a thing and then like, you know, everybody just does that thing. Like very few people are having that experience. And so again, sort of that normalizing of this is hard and it is not impossible, but it is hard. Mm. I'd be remiss in uh, in our community just because people who know me will always go, there's always this debate between management and leadership. So you talk a lot about manager and there's always this debate. And, you know, even with the clients I'm working with at the moment, we're trying to remove the word manager mm-hmm. to take the word leader in there. So I'm fascinated because I'm sure I will get a direct response back about your choice of that and why you feel it's so important. Yeah, We use them nearly interchangeably, which yeah, okay. is, is just anathema to a set of people who all have that T-shirt and that bumper sticker, right, that says, like, management is doing things right and leadership is doing the right things. There's all the sort of druckerisms and misquoted druckerisms around it. And and at the margins, sure, 
yep. have have the semantic distinction, right? It's certainly, we, we, you know, it feels different mm. poetically. It feels different to say leader than to say manager. They, they, they have a different emotional character. Mm. But it gives you so much space to have people view management as approving vacation requests. And we just described a situation within many organizations today where your own manager doesn't know why the team is there. And sure, the yeah. people who feel like leadership is unimportant, leadership isn't their job, their job is management, can tell themselves a lovely story about how it doesn't matter whether that person understands the overarching strategy of the business or the directionality of it, but I guarantee it does. It not only matters to that manager, it matters to everyone that they're managing. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's a, it is just a pretend story to say, oh, well, we can have people approve vacation requests, but not have them understand anything about sort of how to hold their teams accountable or what success or failure looks like over the long time horizon for that organization. Like, I, I don't buy it. In terms of our obnoxiousness trifecta, uh, both of our books very deliberately use both words in the title, mm. right? So our, our first book is How Fucked Up Is Your Management? An Uncomfortable Conversation About Modern Leadership, mm. right? And the second book is Unmanageable Leadership Lessons from an Impossible Year. We do it. It's, it's, we're not trying to thumb our nose at people exactly. We're just wearing our bias on our sleeve, which is that bosses have to do all of this. That if you drew a Venn diagram of these things, they would 90% overlap. And that there's nothing wrong with making distinctions if those distinctions illuminate something for a person and say, like, I see you managing, but I need more leadership from you in this way. Like, mm. that is, that's not a semantically empty sentence. It means something when you say that to someone. But to pretend that you can do one competently without some mastery of the other, is, it's just not true. There is no such thing as a masterful manager who doesn't understand leadership. And there's no such thing as an effective leader who doesn't understand how people work. We also think it's a, it's an entire miss for organizations to try and move away from management. We'll see organizations who don't call their managers managers because they're like, manager is such a loaded term. I'm like, bad management is loaded. Competent management yes. is not. And so let's fix the thing mm -hmm. that needs fixing because the, the idea that we can't call the thing what it is because it's so charged from past bad experiences means we have work to do to fix those bad experiences, not because the word is broken. I love that reframe. I also just think it comes into the player-coach role. So many organizations now have the player-coach operating, um, and the player-coach thinks, well, if I just do some of this management stuff, I'll get it. But they're not fundamentally thinking of it anything else, but I need to tick this done rather than doing it properly. Well, then, like, yeah. which thing got me promoted? Yeah. If my playing got me promoted, then I know which thing I'm going to to focus on, right? And you you end up with folks who feel like they they got promoted for the really stellar individual contribution work and that's how they got the business card. Mm. Okay, great. But then the other pieces feel unimportant and so unimportant that on the business card, it still talks about my individual contribution. Yeah. I think if, if you're a, a CEO or, or a leader of any kind in an organization that's using the player coach model, I would say on the one hand, it's a great transitional element for a lot of roles, right? I mean, yeah. I'm an engineer, I'm running a two-person team, that's not a full management load, so I'm still expected to do some individual work. That could be a great training ground. Mm. You see it with sales folks too, sales right? Sales folks, still hold quota. customer yeah. success leads. Like there's a bunch of roles where it makes sense to move into a transitional phase for a time. But if you're leaning really heavily on that player coach mentality, ask yourself if you genuinely value management, mm. right? Because most of the leaders we talk to say player coach is a way for that person to maintain legitimacy, yep. right? That like... The engineers aren't going to follow someone who doesn't know engineering. And so like their legitimacy comes from them being the smartest engineer in the room that we're just loading them down with extra work. And if they're the smartest engineer in the room, why are we loading them down with extra work, right? That surely if management is a competency that matters, mm -hmm. 
then it, it should be legitimate for someone to become expert at it and to do it full time. And, mm-hmm. and there's an unchallenged assumption in a lot of the orgs that that push that aside. Yeah, specifically the question I would ask is when was the last time one of your player coaches got fired because they weren't coaching? Yeah. And if the answer is never, guess which thing they're doing. Yeah, exactly. And also there's a piece about contribution to the business, particularly in the sales piece you talk about. You know, I'm managing billion-dollar clients and other things, so I'm going to pay attention. Which one am I going to get fired from? That one. Yeah, not the coaching Absolutely. piece. So, yeah, I agree with that. And it's interesting you chose the F word at the beginning of the book because it's I'm getting a – well, not quite the second word in, but I'm I'm getting the sense – there's a challenge here from you to the communities you work with, to the organizations you work with, that you want to hold them to account in the work you do. That's what I'm getting. Yeah. I think one of the things that we really love about our work is that we work with adults. Yeah. Right. We work with adults. And, and fundamentally, if you start with the assumption that you work with adults, so many things fall out of that in terms of how they show up in the program with us, what the expectations are in terms of them doing the actual work. Our completion rates blow away industry average. And when people ask why, we're like, because we we start with the assumption that these are adults. We understand that they're busy and we understand that they have day jobs. But fundamentally, when you ask people to show up as adults, a whole set of things that fall out of that have really, really positive and profound impact on the workforce. And you're right. The the, the framing we use in a lot of our writing is is meant to be a provocation. Um, it's meant to punch up, mm. right? That like even the title of that first book, that wasn't actually targeting some new team lead who's, who's trying to figure out how to operate in their 100-person startup. It's, it's focused on those founders who created a, a set of situations or allowed a set of situations to, to sort of ferment, mm. which are going to be toxic, which, which like there's plenty of historical precedent to point to and say, if you do this, here's where you're going to end up. Mm. And, and to say to them, there's organizational psychology research that came out of Yale that you should really be studying – it, they're never going to, no. they're, they're not going to open that email, right? But if, if somebody puts this book down in front of them that yells at them on the cover, yes. uh, whatever that. else you want to say, they will open the book. Yeah, That is sort of meeting them where they are and mm-hmm. to Melissa's point and treating them like adults and saying, like, let's have a conversation about it. One of the things we joke about, people ask, like, why is your early writing so mad? Mm. Why are you angry mm. all the time? Who are you angry at? And we're like, mostly ourselves. Yeah. Mostly this, this is all the reflections you know, turned around into the second person, but really all the reflections on things that we messed up along the way, lessons that we learned the painful way, Mm -hmm. sometimes painful for ourselves, sometimes painful for people on our teams, Mm -hmm. but still like climbing out of ignorance involved some real discomfort there. We try not to pull punches when it comes to people with power, not wielding it in sort of respectful and equitable ways. We, we talk about it as the price of admission for getting to do this work. Mm-hmm. Again, like it is an incredible honor to be able to do this work, but part of the way that we get to do this work is that we have to talk about the places where we screwed up, yep. right? If you want other people to reflect on the places it's going well and the places it's not going well, you need to go first. Yeah. And, and it's an interesting dynamic because we're talking about the manager and how they start to almost ask the questions of their bosses and other pieces of that. But it's a, it's a bit about a culture you're trying to create here in terms of um, the learning. So if you had to crystallize it down to, and the other book that you wrote on Manageable, which was the lessons from 2020, and people are moving into the hybrid world, mm-hmm. and that's a big challenge for most of the people listening here and what they're doing. What have you learned from that book now applied to the hybrid and the manageable world that you would bring to this? The hardest thing about remote management is management. Mm. There are a hundred things that make hybrid difficult. There are difficult things to navigate. There's negotiation. There's, there's what does it mean for my career if I'm one of the people who chooses to go into the office versus if I'm one of the people who doesn't. You know, 
a lot of that stuff is being talked about now and pulled apart. And Melissa and I did a, a straw poll. We're, we're a four-person team at mm-hmm. Raw Signal Group. Um, we did a, a quick poll of like how many years between us have we spent working remote mm-hmm. just in our various roles? I, what was the answer? 40 years. 40 years. But between the four of us, wow. we had 40 years of experience working in remote contexts. So we've seen a lot of this play out. Yeah. We've seen a lot of the failure modes, right? They're, they're, these aren't new to pandemic. There have been people trying to do remote work for a very long time. And, and Melissa and I, our first management roles were, were global because of the organization that we worked with was global. And so you had people, the sun never set on the Firefox empire. Mm. But um, The first team that I managed, I was in San Francisco and they were in Berlin and we had no overlapping daylight hours, right? We weren't basically awake at the same time. And the challenges that happen when you don't have any daylight hours with your boss is very, it's very hard. Yeah. It acts as an amplifier. It does. And so if, if things are basically solid, wonderful. Mm. Then like remote gives you so many new opportunities and flexibilities and access to talent pools that you wouldn't have otherwise and proximity to different customer bases. Like there's a lot of win for it. Mm. But if things are bad, remote turns up the volume on bad very loud. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the the common questions we get right now is like, well, how do I give feedback over Slack? I'm like, that's not really fundamentally a remote question, right? That's That's a question about how do you give feedback and build the trust in your management relationship to be able to deliver that feedback and have the person hear it. And that can be in an office and that can be sort of in a Zoom window. Mm. But fundamentally, like one of the, the pieces just to underscore, Jonathan said it, but but realistically, like the core of it is a management question, right? It's really about how do I get skillful about delivering feedback, not how do I get skillful about delivering feedback that's digitally mediated. Yeah. So it's, it's the channel, take the channel out of it, but how do I um, deliver against it? I love that. And I love your reframing of that because it is so true. How many people have, have worked for global organizations, which is remote and virtual? So there is, um, there's a lot that we can learn from that previous experience and bring it in. Absolutely. I just, I'm aware of our time, but I, I wanted to come back to the beach conversation. Yeah. And I want to come back to the family and uh, the circumstances. So thinking about what next for you. Yeah and where you want to take this because you've been very successful i think it's the most read newsletter i think in the u.s i think that's right i think you know it's been popular yeah well we purchased the url worldsbestnewsletter.com it's very hard to argue with the url (laughs) that's right exactly surely that's factual i love the elf if you've ever seen elf the movie when he goes in the world's best coffee and he goes in congratulations (laughs) (laughs) basically yeah. yeah But where do you where are you going now? What's the next piece? Because if you're anything like me, you'll get slightly itchy feet and think, right? So there must be something else I'm going to be doing. Yeah, I think the thing that's been incredibly fun for us is that we've started working across uh, multiple market labor markets, multiple time zones. We've tar- started working with more global organizations where nice. historically some member of their management team wouldn't have been able to make a program with us either because they had small children at home or they had caregiver responsibilities or there, there were sort of time zone restrictions. Like there were always a set of people where it would be really hard for us to be able to do that work together. Mm. And the sort of neat part about the last two years, it's, it's sort of shoved us to say how much of that is is real. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Prior to COVID, we, we were exclusively in person. Mm. We worked with an Italian firm once and they said, we'd really, really love to work with you. We'd love to send a bunch of leaders. And we said, wonderful, put them on an airplane. Yeah. And they did. And, that, yeah. and that, was, that was the only answer we had. Yeah. You know, our own kids were very young. And so the idea that we were going to travel all over the world with them, it's, it's feasible for some people, but it's not feasible for us. Mm-hmm. And COVID forced us, mm-hmm. right, to abandon a limiting belief that, that this couldn't happen on virtual. Our thought was always, you know, obviously you could do it, 
but the experience would be so awful. We we could we could deliver the facts, but we wouldn't get the transformative. We wouldn't get the reflective. Yeah. And it did take us developing a lot of our own skill and and pushing into new areas and rethinking how the programs we build work. But but we're there now. And and you know, if you could snap your fingers and make COVID disappear tomorrow, one, you should do that. Yeah. But two, we we would still offer the the virtual programs that we've got. It's just it's just been such a a delight. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, actually we're getting better scores in the virtual than face to face. But might say something about us. But you know, it's uh, it's good. Where can people find you? Get hold of you? Read more about you? How how could they reach out? Yeah. So if they would like our witty banter in their inboxes every two weeks, uh, they can find the newsletter at worldsbestnewsletter.com. And if they want to spy on us as an organization. We're at rawsignal.ca, not .com. That's some startup from years ago. But uh, rawsignal.ca, we, we wear our Canadian flag proudly. Yep. Uh, and then on Twitter, I'm at Shappy, S-H-A-P-P-Y. And I'm at Jonath, J-O-H-N-A-T-H. Amazing. I've really loved our conversation. It's uh, it's woken me up. It's woken my, my thinking around management versus leadership. And I just, I love your style in terms of how you brought yourself to this and the work you do. And it's, it makes me feel like I've been on the right path with my business for a while, just thinking about it. Maybe my management is not on the right path. Maybe we should ask my people, but you know, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> thank you so much. Colin, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. It was great. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, that was Melissa and Jonathan, and uh, delighted to have them on. It's the uh, first time I've interviewed two people at the same time, but I think they dovetailed seamlessly into their conversations and the stories, and uh, and it was, it's just great to hear when you hear a, a couple who've set up a business, been successful, and have worked their way through something now that is exceptional in content, exceptional in delivery. But it's also that risk that people take. So, you know, six years ago, they were giving up two incomes in successful startups at the time to do this, but haven't looked back. And they're passionate about what they do. And that comes across and how they come across on this call. So looking forward to uh, to welcome them back in the future uh, on the podcast episode. But for the moment, thank you to Jonathan and Melissa. Thank you to you for listening. I'll um, look forward to welcoming you back in another episode very shortly.